if I were to tell my younger self something, it would be that there are many ways to be successful. You know, when I look at friends who took different paths, who stayed at a company, you know, at one company longer or moved at a bunch of companies and everyone is, you know, like doing decently well. Welcome to another episode of Hype Fear Presents. We had a little summer break and now we're back with weekly episodes. Today, I talked to Wes Ko. Now, Wes had the honor and pleasure to work with Seth Godin. She developed the Alt-MBA and probably that's one of the more well-known cord-based courses out there. She's currently heading Maven, which is a platform where teachers can host their CBCs. Now in this episode, you'll learn what acquisition channels were great to onboard new students into your courses. And we also talk about how you can become successful as a cohort-based teacher. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hey, Wes, thank you so much for uh, having the time to talk to me. For people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your backstory. You know, how did you end up where you are right now? I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area originally, and my first job out of college was working at the Gap headquarters. And I did a rotational training program where I rotated between the different brands within Gap's umbrella. So Old Navy, Gap, Banana Republic. And that was a really formative experience for me because I got to see how a big company operated and really understand all the fundamental parts of what made a retail business run. I think tangible products are really interesting. You know, ever since I was a kid, I loved walking through the grocery store aisles, looking at, you know, soy milk bottles and skincare products and just seeing What's the merchandising? What's, you know, new products are companies launching? So getting to understand how all that worked behind the scenes, all the way from, you know, starting with the design process, conceptualizing to the supply chain, to understanding factory relationships, to freight and shipping, you know, the couple months when the stack of t-shirts is on the boat on its way to North America and, and all over the world, all the way to when something hits the sales floor. How do we merchandise it? How do we plan for inventory? you know, with neon yellow t-shirts, you might want a rainbow display in the front of the store, but you actually have maybe a 10th of the neon yellow t-shirts and, you know, 10 times more of the basics, black, white, navy, you know, gray. So that was an amazing training ground for me. And from there, I basically went on to progressively smaller companies until I started my own last year, Maven, and now a co-founder building up Maven. Cool. Because that's also something that stood out. You know, I was just skimming through your LinkedIn profile. What, what did you do? And one of the things that, you know, I had when I was younger, like 15 years ago, I think I started at a corporate as well, at, at a traineeship as well. But I had a fixed term contract for one and a half years, but I couldn't even stay there for that long. So I was young and I it was a big bank here in the Netherlands. It was just for me, you know, things were moving so slow and it was just not how I wanted to operate. So I'm wondering, you know, how did that help you like working in a big corporate? How did that help you move along in your career? And how could you keep it interesting for yourself? Because, I, you know, you were young, wanted to do things and probably things moved a bit slower than you wanted. Yeah, I definitely felt very impatient. So I can definitely relate. You know, in hindsight, I feel like I left sooner then maybe I should have. So I stayed for two years. I did the one year training program and then another year. And I remember just wanting to move up and there not being enough room or, you know, my boss not feeling I was ready. And there was this constant impatience 
And now, you know, 15 years later, I look back and I'm like, okay, did I have to be that impatient? Probably not. Like, could I have learned a bit more staying a bit longer? You know, I think, I think in the end it, it all worked out and as things do. But, you know, one thing that I've noticed is that if you stick with something long enough, you will eventually become an expert at that thing. So I think I took a very different path than a lot of friends who stayed in corporate retail or, you know, stayed even within the gap. So one of my friends, Felipe, we started on the same day at the gap in 2008 and he's still there. So, you know, what is 2021? Yeah. So he's a director, senior director now. And, you know, I've had, I don't know, like five companies (laughs) since then. And I think if I were to tell my younger self something, it would be that there are many ways to be successful. You know, when I look at friends who took different paths, who stayed at a company, you know, at one company longer or moved at a bunch of companies who were really aggressive in their careers versus more chill and more relaxed about it. I was always in the former camp of like, I was planning my career since high school. Like I was 15 and like planning what internships do I want to do first? What job do I want to have? And then what's the next step after that? How do I build, you know, a varied skill set? How do I move up, you know, the leadership ladder? Like, you know, I planned a lot for my career and I have friends who really didn't. And everyone is, you know, decently, like doing decently well, you know? So I think there's different stages and phases in life. Sometimes you want to be more planful and more aggressive, maybe other times it's okay to be more chill. I feel like things kind of even out as long as you obviously, you know, bring your all to whatever it is that you're doing. That's, you know, only fair to yourself and to your employer. But yeah, that's one thing that I've kind of realized over the years is like, oh, cool. Like people who, you know, were more chill also ended up, you know, doing decently well. Yeah. And was it also like a plan to move to progressively smaller businesses or is this just, you had different roles there that you could take or how did that go? I think that was more serendipitous. So I, I think it just happened that way, but you know, who knows? Maybe my subconscious was itching for something smaller where I can make a bigger impact. There was more room to expand into working in different areas. I think when you're at a bigger company, there's a lot more specialization. So there's someone who focuses on this particular slice. So you have to do your particular slice. And I think moving to smaller companies meant, you know, more responsibility, the ability to try areas that I wasn't necessarily an expert in already when joining the company. And I think also I like the the freedom to challenge boundaries and to invent the way that we do things. You know, a lot of times bigger companies have figured out how they do the thing. So if you go to work in a, a consumer packaged goods company, which was my dream originally, and I soon realized that that wasn't it for me. But if you go to work at Procter & Gamble, if you work at Unilever, Colgate-Palmolive, Clorox, you work on, let's say, the Pantene Pro-V hair care brand, you know, Pantene isn't going to switch into you know, a random category soon, like skincare. I mean, I don't know, maybe they will. So, but if they do, I called it, just kidding. So, you know, they've been in hair care for a very long time, decades, and they figured out who their customer is and the best way to reach that customer and the retail partnerships and relationships that they need to have and their distribution channel. And they have brand guidelines. They have a copywriting language and a style guide. So all of these things are pretty set. So if you join Procter & Gamble and you, you know, working on Pantene, you're not inventing these things from scratch per se, you're growing and building an existing mature brand. And obviously there's still so much that you can do there to grow market share, to you know continue to innovate, but their guardrails are different. And for me, I like starting more from a blank canvas. It's simultaneously terrifying because on a blank canvas, it's like you can do anything and therefore, you know, where do you start? There's almost too few constraints, but I also love the idea that you can start from first principles. 
and think about what do we think is the best way to approach this problem now, unconstrained from 50 years of you know, an organization that has been doing something in this way, and you're trying to make a hard right or a hard left, trying to get them to do something else. And so during your career path, you came into contact with a huge author. Tell us a little bit about how that went. Yeah. So I think I know who you're talking about. So Seth Godin, I started working with Seth in 2014. And at that time, I had been living in San Francisco. I'd been there my whole life. I had been at an advertising tech startup for a couple of years and was itching for something new. And I saw that Seth put up a blog post saying that he was looking for a special projects lead for a six-month stint to help him figure out what to do next. At the time, he had just sold his previous company that he had worked on for you know eight, nine years and was exploring what the next big project that he should take on. And so I saw this blog post and I thought, okay, the chances of me submitting an application and getting this is pretty slim, but I'm going to toss my name in the ring anyway. So the first lesson there is always apply, always toss your, uh, toss your hat in the ring. So I applied on a whim, you know, and the, the application was, you know, multi-parts. There was a written part, there was a video and you had to film, you know, like a two to three minute video about what you want to build, what you want to learn and what you can contribute. So I did my video in one take in my living room and kind of sent it off thinking, thinking not much of it. You know, it was lower stakes. I thought like, you know, I'm not going to get this anyway. And a couple of days later, I hear back from Seth. I see, you know, Seth Godin is in my inbox saying, hey, I liked your application. Let's hop on a call for an interview. So I was, I was shocked and kind of, you know, jumping up and down. And, you know, we did a couple interviews and eventually I got the role and I packed my life into six suitcases, flew across the country to New York, got an apartment sight unseen. And, you know, what originally started off as six month project ended up lasting three years, three very rewarding, fulfilling years where together we launched the Alt MBA and grew it to thousands of students and alumni from around the world. Even before that, my initial time there was figuring out, well, what should we really do? So we eventually landed on the Alt MBA, but the initial couple months was thinking about all kinds of different projects, ranging from an artisanal bean to bar chocolate company, because Seth loves chocolate to potentially starting an ad agency that would focus on issues that normally were forgotten in the tragedy of commons. So positive, you know, world-changing ideas that, you know, weren't anyone's responsibility, climate change, other topics like that, to mobile gaming apps, potentially. And we eventually narrowed it down to content and to teaching because Seth has, you know, been a teacher for decades and his ideas have been really impactful for a lot of people. And simultaneously, we were realizing that, you know what, people don't read as much as they do anymore. And attention spans are pretty short. So, you know, Seth can either continue writing books and making that his main channel, or we can explore different ways to make his content more interactive, more engaging, more community driven. And so that's really what kicked off what eventually became the Alt MBA. And so when he started looking for people to hire you, luckily, I guess he wasn't actually sure on what to create. He sold his business. He had, you know, a little bit of money, probably a lot of money. And, you know, I guess there was like a couple of months where you both were figuring out, okay, what are we going to do? And here was Seth as in huge. Here were you as in not so huge. Wasn't that incredibly intimidating? And how could you still be heard without thinking, oh man, what is he going to think about me Oh, how did that go? Yeah, I love this question. I actually haven't been asked this question before. So, so this is amazing. So a couple thoughts. One is I had heard of Seth before 
But I, at the time that I applied, I didn't understand how famous he really was in the world of marketing. So that was actually really helpful because I think if I had known, I would have felt more starstruck and I would have, you know, probably gotten in my head and, and overanalyzed my, you know, application and whatnot. So I think that helped. I wasn't a fanboy, fangirl. So I think that was very helpful. So that was one. The second is, I think one of the best parts of working with Seth was he was incredibly democratic about where good ideas came from. So that allowed us to have these rich debates where we would literally argue about what to do. And, you know, you might think, well, you know, someone who's super famous, you know, and someone who's not like, what is that dynamic like? But because he valued ideas for what they were, not necessarily the messenger and, you know, the status of the messenger that allowed us to have really great conversations about, you know, what is the best course of action that we should take? So I think, I think that was also very helpful. And I think the other thing is our skill sets were very complementary. You know, me bringing a fresh perspective as someone who, you know, wasn't as familiar with, you know, publishing world, the book writing world. He had, um, his audience is much more freelancers, creatives, solopreneurs. And I kind of came more from a more VC-backed startup, corporate backgrounds. Like there was a good tension. And I think also his, he would admit too that his ideas are more high level, vision driven, kind of these amazing mic drop insights. A lot of the why right? The why and maybe the, the what. And a lot of what I'm excited about is the how. So that was a great pairing because he would have, you know, some pie in the sky, you know, idea. And my initial reaction was, you know, that's wild. Like that's, you know, blah, you know, and then, and then I would think about, well, how do we make this come to life? What does the, the how look like behind the scenes for this to actually work? And I love thinking about the how. I think, you know, I think a lot of times people agree with the why and the what, that yes, we should you know, create change. Yes, we should, you know, speak up in our work. Yes, we should do bold things. But the question becomes, well, how do I do that? How does someone normal like me start to do that and do it in a systematic way over time? So I love thinking about the how. So we had a really great healthy tension that allowed us to create amazing projects together. Nice. And so, okay, after a couple of months, Elt MBA, you know, got a little bit of shape. How did you, you know, and, and the team construct the first, you know, I guess, piece, how did that come to life? We had so many different iterations of what the Alt-MBA could look like. And so speaking of designing from a blank slate, you know, the original idea was, okay, you have your Udemy courses, Skillshare, Coursera, edX, LinkedIn Learning, and these are all video-driven courses. It's self-paced, on-demand. It's basically a person by themselves watching a bunch of content. There's no community, no interaction, no hands-on doing on the part of the learner. And the completion rates are super low. So six to 10%. Recent MIT study said three to 6% of people actually finish these courses. So our initial inspiration was, well, can we do something differently here that is more impactful because a higher percentage of people will engage and actually participate in and finish a course? And so we thought, well, what if we did the opposite of what a, a MOOC, Massive Open Online course is? So, you know, instead of it being free or low cost, what if we made it expensive enough so that people felt like they had skin in the game? What if instead of doing it solo, it was a community-driven course? And what if instead of it being self-paced, you can do it anytime? What if we had start and end dates that were set and mandatory and you had to do uh, the course during this amount of time with a cohort of people? And what if anyone being able to do it, you had to be selected and there was an application process. It was a curated group of, of like-minded professionals. 
So that kind of was a, was a starting point for, okay, now, you know, this is starting to take shape, but the details, right? The how of, you know, is this a, a one week thing? Is this an eight month thing? Are we, you know, looking at the analogy of, of a traditional MBA program, which is two years. So should our program be two years? Or are we looking and modeling after, you know, in-person workshops or, you know, existing online trainings. So there were so many different analogies that we could have anchored on that would have shifted kind of the baseline look and feel and flavor of what this thing could be. And then came pricing. So, you know, at the time, Udemy courses were 50 some dollars. A lot of courses were, you know, $20, maybe up to a hundred. So when we say, you know, more expensive, are we thinking 200? Are we thinking 2000? Are we thinking 20,000? Are we thinking 200,000? Right, like two hundred thousand might sound extreme, but MBA programs are over a hundred, you know, one hundred fifty thousand for the two-year commitment. And so, again, you know, the range and spectrum of what we we're looking at, there were so many different questions and, and ways to think about it. And then, you know, thinking about the live component, so we knew we wanted there to be something live, so that there could be a sense of focus and urgency. But are we thinking, you know, every day live, you know, that people are, are meeting online? Are we thinking blended? So there's an online portion and then a, an in-person portion where maybe people fly to New York for a weekend or fly to SF or somewhere else in the world and gather, you know, are we thinking, you know, once a week meeting, right? So, and are there facilitators who are guiding these sessions or, you know, people are self-organizing? So again, there were so many different questions that we had to answer that in hindsight, when you look at what the program is today, a one month program where you meet three times a week with, with your peer group their coaches, et cetera, it feels inevitable. Like, oh, of course, of course they set it up that way. Like, oh yeah, that makes so much sense. Took a lot of work. Totally. Like if you, if you kind of look behind the scenes, it, it was not obvious at all. And, you know, truth be told, I was skeptical of, you know, could this all work? At the time, it was really such a, a random, different kind of outlier that, that the chance of it working felt slim. You know, I think we thought about designing in a way that would increase engagement and thought about how do we structure this, but, but it was still something that was so different that, you know, whether it worked or not, it, it felt completely, you know, up in the air. How did you in the end decide on like three big things like price, length, and how many live sessions? Yeah, it's hard to say what was a, a defining moment where we decided that. It was really over a couple months looking at a bunch of different ways to structure. And there are certain variables that tend to be grouped. So for example, the length of time of a course is usually grouped with the amount of transformation that someone can have. So if you have, let's say, 30 minutes to talk to someone and change their life, that's a pretty short time. If you have 30 days, that's a different story. If you have 300 days, again, a different story, right? Like over a year of time spent with that person. So thinking about the amount of transformation that we wanted students to have by the end, and then thinking about, all right, what's the minimum amount of time that it would take to do that. You know, a month felt like the minimum amount of time that we would need to have students change their behavior in a meaningful way and develop new habits. So it, it was kind of thinking about what are the variables that are grouped, right? Like the transformation and time, and then also looking at different analogies and what price point felt like it could be a no-brainer for the student and yet still feel meaty enough that it would weed out a lot of tire kickers and people who just wanted to, you know, see what this was about, but weren't really serious about committing, weren't really serious about the mission. So again, when we were looking at the price point, thinking, okay, you know, in this range, a couple thousand dollars, that felt right. 
And then thinking about student count with how many people do we want in this program? Again, looking at, you know, Dunbar's number, you know, 100, 120 people for, you know, the amount of people that where you can kind of still know who everyone is. So we took inspiration from that. Uh, So all these things helped to narrow down, all right, here's what we think this could look like. And we always had the idea that we can iterate from, from here. You know, we feel good about this. We're not just throwing spaghetti on a wall and seeing what sticks. We felt like we had a thesis about what could work, knowing that once we try it, we can iterate and double down on the things that people find most helpful and edit and adjust the things that didn't fit our original hypothesis and update the hypothesis. And so after a while, the course was done. How did you get your first paying customers? Was it just uh, Seth typing one blog post and then, you know, the course filled or what happened? Yeah. So in the very beginning, it was Seth adding a PS in some blog posts to drive those initial those initial students. Really early on, though, I'd say within the first five months or so, four or five months, we really wanted to make sure that we were not relying on Seth's blog. And the reason for that is I wanted to make sure that the Altenby had its, its own legs and taxing Seth's broader audience didn't really make sense, right? Like if there's a certain portion, a sub-segment of his audience that is interested in the Alt-MBA or interested in different learning opportunities and courses and programs, we should market to those people directly because we have permission to market to them. 90% of people aren't really interested in that and they mainly want to get Seth's blog to get Seth's blog. We don't want to tax them by constantly mentioning courses and, and other things. So I started an email list pretty early on so that we could be more targeted with talking about the Alt-MBA. That was one big thing that we did. The second is we reached out to different organizations where we wanted students from these companies. So for example, you know, one thing that I did was I pulled a list of Seth's email subscribers for his blog and I filtered by domain. So at Google, at Nike, at General Mills, at, you know, Procter & Gamble. And I sorted in ascending order and looked at where we had the most subscribers. And I noticed there were 10 companies where we had a bunch of subscribers. So I looked some people up on LinkedIn, ended up reaching out to some of these students that seemed like they could be a good fit and said, you know, hey, you know, we're launching this new online course. It's pretty different. It's kind of something new. And if you're interested, we would love to have you participate and and we'll give you a free scholarship. And from there, a bunch of people said, yeah, like this sounds really interesting. And I turned all of these students into case studies and testimonials by the end of the program. So thinking creatively about, all right, you know, what's the kind of student that we really want to attract? And when you're just starting out, you know, people don't know what this thing is. They're like, this is weird. Like, I don't know what this is. I might want to do it in the future once it's a bit more proven, once, you know, there's a bit of of a track record of what this is, but I don't want to be, you know, maybe the first one to take the leap. So really feeling that by attracting these early adopters and reaching out proactively was great. And, you know, those case studies and testimonials, some of these people end up being our biggest evangelists and, uh, and drove word of mouth in their companies with other, you know, people of similar types of companies, people from Lululemon, Whole Foods, Kickstarter, Nike, Shibani Yogurt. So I think that was a smart thing that we did early on to drive that word of mouth. And then from there, really building up Alt-MBA as an institution. I think that was a decision that we made at a certain point where, you know, we can continue running this as a, as a one-off project, or we could turn it into its own institution. And that was a turning point where, you know, I really began focusing on that, on the Altamia full-time. I think that was in the first couple of months when we realized that, wow, like the Altamia is working. 
this is something that people want. It's changing people. People are, you know, alumni are giving us amazing feedback about how, you know, in 30 days, their posture has changed, their mindset has changed. They've internalized lessons about leadership management, shipping, overcoming perfectionism, making better decisions, thinking about storytelling in a much deeper way than they anticipated. That led to thinking, okay, we should give this the weight that it deserves and really focus on it and grow it. And so that's where my focus was for for the majority of the time, building out the team, building out the coach system, the coach hiring, vetting, training, managing coaches, hiring out a bunch of freelancers that we worked with all over the world, building out the marketing and sales funnel to make sure that we were constantly getting in front of new students that would love to work with us. Hmm. Nice. Yeah, you're basically creating your first couple of advocates at huge companies. They were very enthusiastic. That, that started a pretty big wildfire, I guess. And then what kind of marketing channels and funnels did you create to keep the fire burning? How, what did you do? Yeah, I think one common misconception is people think, well, Seth has a huge audience. So marketing must have been really easy, right? And so that wasn't true. I think if you think about segmenting your audience, there are people who sign up for different things. So Seth had a blog readership of about a million people, but most people had never paid us a single dollar before, right? Like 90% of those people wanted the free blog. So the difference between, you know, not paying you anything versus a dollar is, is a huge chasm. So I think that's one good lesson that I think is really encouraging for first-time course creators or, you know, experts that are wanting to build something similar to the Alt MBA, create your own course, is to not get discouraged if you see someone with a bigger audience. So chances are they just started building their audience sooner, years before you did. You were probably focusing on something else, working in-house, building your career, etc., but it's definitely something that you can you can overcome as a, as a first-time course creator. So even though Seth had said at the huge audience, we still had to look at different channels for nurturing and segmenting these prospective students. So email was a really huge channel for us. I think email is sometimes seen as outdated or has a bad rap as being this you know older channel. And a lot of our nurturing happened via email. What were the main drivers to get people on the list? So we did a bunch of things. I did info sessions to talk about the Alt MBA, uh, info sessions where I was just teaching and having Seth teach about you know a certain concept and talk about you know a concept that we cover in the Alt MBA. We did alumni panels where it was me interviewing three different alumni about why they decided to do the Alt MBA, what were some of their biggest lessons, what was the reason they almost didn't do the Alt MBA, what else? I had a, a 32-page brochure that we would mail to people physically in the mail. And it's beautiful and glossy and, you know, photos and stories and case studies. And we did a little bit of paid advertising, but just a tiny bit. A lot of content that was meant to educate and teach our audience. I think that was a, a big driver at the top of the funnel. And once someone signed up for our email list, it was more content that was meant to be really helpful. So I think that was something that we did differently. I think a lot of email these days is used purely to sell and to promote, to promote different products. And I would get emails from subscribers all the time saying that they're shocked that I haven't done a hard sell yet and that they've learned so much from getting my emails twice a week. And it, it felt like blog posts, interesting ideas, interesting thought-provoking nuggets for them to think about. And that really attracted them to the Alt MBA because they thought, oh, like this is the kind of thinking 
that goes on within this program. I think I want to be part of that. Yeah. Hey, I want to move on to Maven, but not before I ask one more question. That's mostly for me, but I'm really interested in like, what's the biggest thing you learned from Seth? Gosh, I learned so many things. So it's hard to boil it down into one, but I'm trying to think. I think one big thing that I learned from Seth was that it's okay to challenge how things are done and to have a different point of view than everyone else in your field or everyone else doing a thing. I think intellectually, I understood that. And I think intellectually, all of us understand that, right? Like march to the, you know, the beat of your own drum, like stand out, blah, blah, blah. But it can be really hard when you're, you know, surrounded by people who are doing things a certain way or, you know, the culture of the company that, that you're in. And for, you know, many times throughout my career, I felt like me thinking differently and wanting to suggest a new or better or more efficient way or more effective way of doing something was kind of met with a little bit of a finger wag, like a little bit of a poo-poo, like, oh, Wes, like, no, like, stop. Like, just like, let's just, let's just keep doing things the way we were doing it. And like, things are fine. Like, and it wasn't really until I worked with Seth that that attitude of challenging ideas and speaking up and advocating for what you believe was celebrated. You know, before I almost thought of this as a, a bug and after working with Seth, I realized that this was a feature and that this was one of my biggest strengths that I could bring to an organization and I should harness it. And, and obviously it's not just, you know, being contrarian for the sake of it or, or shaking things up without thinking about getting buy-in, you know, those two go hand in hand. Shaking things up and getting buy-in is the way that, you know, you really move things forward. But I really appreciate that our time together made me realize that this, you know, he calls it ruckus, being a ruckus maker is absolutely a feature. And, you know, with hiring and building the culture at Maven and, and encouraging different behaviors, that's absolutely something that is so paramount to what we look for and is something that I really celebrate and, and want to encourage my team. Cool. And I guess LMBA, in, in a sense, is probably one of the most successful code-based courses out there. What was the moment you thought, man, this niche, this type of teaching, this really needs its its own spot? Yeah, there was a certain point towards the tail end of my time at LMBA where I started to question, was there something in the water, something in the air at the time that we built the LMBA that allowed us to do this? You know, was this a fluke of some sort, a, a wonderful, successful fluke, but you know, was it something unique to, to our situation or was this something that could be replicated with other verticals, with other industries, with other creators, with other experts, with other, with other people with knowledge to share and communities that wanted to get together. And so that nagging question really led me to, you know, the next phase of my adventures, which was working directly with creators on building their own versions of the Alt-MBA, their own schools, their own core-based courses and really kicking off this category that we now call core-based courses. So I worked with Professor Scott Galloway, who's one of my earliest clients, to work with him and his founding team to design their sprint, their two-week core-based course that now has over a thousand students per cohort, run you know almost every other month now. And I worked with the co-founders of Morning Brew, Alex Lieberman and Austin Reef, to design their Morning Brew Accelerator, eight-week core-based course. Uh, I worked with David Perel from Rite of Passage. He's a 20-something-year-old with a multi-million dollar business teaching writing online with no formal training, no formal background, making a huge impact. So, you know, through working with these different creators and helping to either design and build their courses from scratch 
or helping to amplify and grow the seedlings of what they've already built, this really proved that, hey, like this is real. Like there's a trend happening here. There's something special about this format of cohort-based courses where people are learning live together and it's much more community-driven. It's much more interactive. That made me realize that there was something really exciting here. And doing that for, for two, two and a half years eventually led me to starting Maven and thinking, you know, hey, like these courses are, are changing people's lives, but the number of people who can do a cohort-based course, who can, who can create one, is still really limited. You know, the people I was working with were pretty much on the whole already quote unquote successful by, you know, society standards and could afford to have a team of people working on all the complicated parts of building a core-based course behind the scenes and running it and all the convoluted parts of, you know, cobbling together these different tools, stitching it together, you know, you know, working on, on the production behind the scenes. And it felt like a shame that this process was essentially cutting out a whole, whole swath of people who should be teaching. You know, people with a lot of knowledge to share who maybe are solopreneurs, they're consultants or small business owners, they might be operators working in industry. You know, all of these people have have amazing insights to share about, about their work and deserve to be able to teach a go-based course, deserve to be able to bring their communities together. Uh, so that was really the inspiration for Maven was starting to tackle this from a technology perspective. How do we use technology to make all of this easier so more people can get involved and teach courses and make an additional revenue stream from teaching what they love. And then by virtue of that, opening up access for a bunch of students who normally wouldn't be able to learn from subject matter experts or operators unless they worked you know, on that person's team or worked in the same company as that person, right? So really democratizing the knowledge that someone like Lenny Nurchitsky, who's an early product manager at Airbnb, someone like Lenny has a ton to share about product. But you know, unless you worked with Lenny literally you know, on his team or an adjacent team, how would you learn from him, right? Like you can read his articles, you might watch him on YouTube, but for you to be able to take a core-based course by Lenny, a two to three week course where he's distilled his knowledge into this rich action-packed experience, it's just a, a completely different level for the learner. And what were the big takeaways, I guess, from uh, working with Alex and David that you took to Maven? What was the difference or maybe it wasn't with all MBA and like solopreneurs, yeah, there were so many, so many learnings. I think one of the biggest ones was realizing how convoluted of a process creating a course was for everyone. So that was really the, the impetus, the inspiration for even starting Maven in the first place was, you know, even for these really, these really insightful, sharp, competent creators that there wasn't really a better way to create a code-based course besides this kind of disjointed cobbling together of different tools. So that was a really, a really big one. You know, one thing that, that I'm seeing from working with a lot of Maven instructors, we have, you know, over 50 courses on the platform now, and we're still pre-product technically. So we got, you know, great early traction is seeing just the breadth of courses and the breadth of creators that are excited about core-based courses. And, you know, the, the amazing thing about creators is that they are very imaginative innovative people by nature. So, you know, you tell them something, they will take it, break it, remix it, invent something themselves and subvert whatever you told them and make it better. And I love that. So, you know, right now I teach a three-week course on how to build core-based courses. So this is one of the most highly leveraged way to 
teach someone the basics end to end of here's all you need to think about to make a course. And so many of the creators that we've taught have taken these first principles and remixed them and created something that was even better than what I was teaching. You know, so one great example is Julian Shapiro and Sahil Bloom. So they have a, a two to three day audience building core based course. They ran one a couple months ago. Another one is coming up in September. And, you know, at the time I taught them, you know, core based courses work great when they're, let's say, a couple weeks long. And my anchor, my inspiration for that was the Alt MBA, right? The Alt MBA is four weeks. David's course is six weeks. So, you know, kind of that three to six week mark felt quote unquote normal for me. And Julian and Sawhill decided to do a three day course. So at first I was like, oh, wow, like, is this, you know, okay, you know, what's going on there? But, you know, two seconds later, I was like, okay, this is great. I love that you are breaking these rules and, and, you know, doing your own thing. Share with us how it goes, right? Trust your instinct. That's something that I tell all creators that I work with is, you know, your audience best you know your topic best, you know yourself best. So if you have a hunch about a way that you want to do something that's different than what I might've shared with you, definitely go do it, right? Like trust trust that instinct and, and expand on, on the principles, right? But like make it your own. So the two to three day course was a smashing success. People loved it. It was amazing for people with shorter attention spans. People felt like it was intense and condensed and, uh, you know, really great, a really great primer to audience building. And at the time, I had kind of looked around at some other courses that were a bit shorter too. So, you know, Nas Academy from Nas Daily, Nusire, a good friend of mine who has court based course platform too, he had some shorter courses. And I was like, okay, that's interesting, you know, that, that people are doing some shorter ones. And so, you know, staying really open to, hey, what are other creators doing? What could be new ways of serving students that we haven't thought about? That's probably one of the biggest sources of learnings is just from seeing what creators themselves are launching and doing and remixing. Nice. And so let's say I want to build a, a CBC. What kind of prerequisites do I need? And you know, what kind of tips would you give like early teachers or people who don't have a lot of, you know, I guess, experience teaching? One of the first concepts that we teach in the Maven Course Accelerator is to think about course market fit. So most people think about marketing as this last step that you do, you build the product, it's an amazing product, and then you kind of tack on marketing at the end and hope for the best. So that really doesn't work, especially in the world of courses where there's a, a lower barrier to entry many times, right? A lot of people want to teach, a lot of people want to put their expertise online. So you really have to think about course market fit starting from day one. And that includes a framework that I call inside out, outside in. So what does that mean? If you think of two circles as a Venn diagram. So outside in is thinking about the market. What are questions that people ask you all the time? What are, what are problems that people come to you with that they already believe that you have the expertise to solve? So for someone like Sarah Sudeen Parr, who is an instructor on Maven, she's a designer at Airbnb, people would ask her questions like, hey, Sarah, how do I do user research if I'm a founder? Or, hey, Sarah, how do I get at the heart of what customers actually care about. Because I feel like they tell me one thing and then when I give it to them, they actually say like, oh, okay, like this wasn't that useful, even though they told me that it was. So how do I do more accurate you know, customer development? Or how do I figure out what to build in the first place, right? So these are some questions that she was getting all the time. So that's outside in. And the other circle of the Venn diagram is inside out. If you look internally, if you look in your heart of hearts, 
What are the topics that you're most excited about? What are the topics that you're fascinated by that you feel like are a source of never-ending intellectual stimulation for yourself? So let's say if you're a marketer, you might start off thinking, well, you know, marketing, you know, is my topic, but there's probably something within marketing, a subtopic, and even a subtopic within that subtopic that you are most excited by. So maybe it's positioning and messaging. It, or, you know, it might be product launches, or it might be SEO, or it might be funnels. You're just fascinated by funnels, right? So what is it that you specifically are the most excited about that you spend your free time thinking about? That's the inside out piece. So you want to look at the Venn diagram overlap of those two circles, because you want to, you want to teach on something where there's market demand and people believe in your expertise, and you want it to be something that you are interested enough to care about building a course in the first place and, and do the hard work of building that course. So that's where I would recommend people to start. Yeah. And in my mind, like only people who have a huge audience will say, okay, I can build a core-based course because I need my followers to tag along. They know me. I already talk about that subject. Is that is that accurate? Or would you say that, you know, if you have no social following, but you're like the expert in a certain topic, you could do something like this? Having some kind of social following or an existing community is definitely helpful. So if you think about, you know, people who already trust you and the ways that they're learning from you already, whether it's your existing clients, your existing customers, people who subscribe to your newsletter, these are all a great starting point and foundation. However, if you do not have that, that is not a deal breaker. So it's not by any means, hey, I don't have a huge Twitter following, I can't do a course. So that's not it at all. We have a lot of course creators who are starting out building their audience who have done amazing with their core-based course. And what it takes is a bit of hustle and resourcefulness and getting creative about getting in front of your prospective students. So Shivani Berry is a great example. She started building her course about you know, a year, year and a half ago. She was working in-house at you know, PayPal or Intercom at that time. She was a product manager. And before starting to build her core-based course, she was an in-house employee. So she wasn't thinking very much about growing her Twitter following, growing her email list. And so when she started, she had zero, zero on all social, you know, social platforms or close to that. And even to this day, she still has pretty, pretty modest social following. But the amazing thing is that Shivani was creative about getting in front of audiences that would appreciate and be excited to see that her course existed. So her course is leadership for women in tech and helping women advance in their careers. So she did fireside chats with different women in tech, CEOs, CMOs, chief product officers at you know, women at different companies um, to get in front of their audiences. So when she interviewed them, they, of course, would want to share that interview and, and share, you know, share that they were you know, on this webinar. So that was one way. Another way was she would do free sessions, free workshops, teaching how to advocate for yourself, teaching how to work with difficult personalities, teaching how to negotiate. And so she would show up at companies like Amazon or Walmart or, or you know, wherever and do these one-hour workshops where she would teach them something useful. She wasn't just showing up trying to, you know, trying to sell stuff. She would teach them something useful and then, of course, give a blast like, hey, if people are interested, if you're interested in, you know, in learning more about this, I have this six-week course that you can take to dive deeper. And so by bringing value first, she was able to build trust, show her credibility, and get people interested. And then in the meantime, she was starting to post more on social. 
So if you don't ever post anything and you don't share your knowledge, how are people supposed to know all the gems of wisdom that you have? So she started to write a newsletter. She started to post on LinkedIn. She started to post on Twitter. So these were all ways that she was starting to share her knowledge and build her more public persona and her more public expertise. So doing all these things, plus a bunch more, she was able to double the number of students she had in each cohort. So she started with you know, 10 to 15 students. Her next cohort a couple months later had 25 to 30. Her next cohort had 50 to 60. Her upcoming one has you know, 80 to 90 students. So she was able to double her student count from cohort to cohort. And so I think Shivani is a great example. We have a ton of other instructors who are, who are in a similar place. So I think the takeaway though is you do need to want to grow your course. It's not going to just grow on its own. Very few products sell themselves. Courses are no exception. So if this is something that you're excited about, you have to put in the effort to market your course and tell people about it so that they know that it exists and know that you have a lot to share. So let's say I decided to create a CBC. I want to apply to Maven. Like, I don't think anyone can join. So what are things you look at from like a teacher perspective? And how does Maven help me like get up and running? And what does Maven do for me as a teacher? Right now we're in private beta and we're pre-launch. So we're accepting instructors in batches. So we have the Maven course accelerator, the three-week course that I mentioned. So this is the way that we onboard first-time course creators to make sure that you have everything you need and kind of learn the the basics of how to build a course. And uh, within three weeks, you'll have a pilot, an MVP of your course, and that'll launch on Maven. So in terms of what Maven brings, we're a platform that makes it really easy for you to host, build, and launch your course. And so that includes the end-to-end process from a technology and tooling perspective. So accepting applications, landing page, the payment flow, payment processing, giving creators and instructors a student portal so your students can log in to access everything that they need about your course. They can see you know, a calendar, they can see a student directory of who, you know, who else is in the course. They'll be able to access the different content and materials that you release on a daily or weekly basis. You'll be able to you know, edit in real time. So everything that, that your students need in one place instead of you know, going to five different platforms, So really, we're providing that technology and that tooling layer to make it a lot easier. And then plus the know-how piece, that's kind of the icing on the cake, is we do have a lot of experience building courses. So we want to share all those resources with you as you build your course business. Nice. Well, I'm really excited about CBCs. I already asked one of our team members to apply to the three-week cohorts on building cohort-based courses. So excited to see how that goes. Wes, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find you and, and Maven? We're at maven.com. And you can also find me at westko.com and at west underscore ko on Twitter. Thank you, Wes. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Yannick. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. Thank you.